I'm grateful to be back up here again. You know, it's been um, a while since we've been at church, just with everything going on. Um, it's it's a frightening time when you think you're going to lose your spouse. I'll just say that straightforward. Um, my wife and I, you know, we lived in sin for a while, but we've been married almost 15 years and um, met her what, late 98, and uh, we have six children. So my wife and I are, like, really close. We've been, like, friends for many, many years. We've always joked, you know, and played together when we were in college together. Um, and she introduced me to the Lord. So, you know, regardless of how much we be boxing at home, we don't get along, not literally, obviously, but... You know, it, it just, you never are prepared for anything like that, you know, until it just comes your way, you know, out of the blue. And all the Bible study, which we should do, all the preparation and right theology, I think it does help when we go through those things. But we're, we're in need of mercy when those things happen. I mean, you're in need of the grace of God. You're in need to call upon God. And ask him, like he says in his word, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will answer you and you will glorify me. That's when those moments become real, you know. And I know as we go through life, you know, we really don't know if we're prepared for those moments until it happens. So, you know, the, the one highlight I'll say uh, in the very beginning was just seeing my son grab my hands and just cry out to the Lord with tears coming down his face. That was, that was a powerful moment for me, you know, just to see that faith in him. And even through it, you know, just to see my own faith tested. I mean, we had some really dark moments. You know, I remember when my wife was in there and we didn't know what was going on. And, um, you know, our four-year-old, she kept crying out, I want my mommy. And, whoo, man, I broke down. It was, it was pretty bad, you know, but Thank the Lord, you know, he's had, he had mercy on my wife, and for now she's having some up and down days, but uh, they've even told her that she might not have had a stroke, but we're holding out hope. You know, I didn't know what to expect when that night happened, if she was going to make it, if she was going to be totally, you know, in what state she was going to be in. She came home, you know, her speech was not so great, but, you know, God brings all these things across our paths so that he will reveal things to us about him and about ourselves. You know, that's just that's just how God works. I love this verse in Psalm 7, 9, when it says, Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and the minds. And that's what he does. That's what he does. He's a faithful God. And I even had to tell my kids, you know, when she went in there, I was like, well, I don't know what's going to happen with your mom, but I know we better think like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that God can deliver us, but he certainly is not obligated to, you know, and that's a hard pill to swallow when you're going through it, because I was listening to a message a couple weeks ago about Sproul when he was saying evil is not good, and how when God sovereignly sends these decrees our way, we sit up and like question God in our hearts immediately, like, like, well, I don't like this. Like, who do you think you are, God? <laughs> Almost. Like, many of us won't verbalize it, 
but many of us, maybe God will give us the grace to muzzle our mouths and, and even our thoughts and not think those things. But it's there sometimes in us. You know, it's there and we need to acknowledge that. So this was a blessing to me to study this uh, catechism question. It's something for a long time throughout the years that the Lord has saved me that he has shown me bits and pieces of. But I feel like it's starting to like more and more as I've been a student of scripture in my private worship of the Lord that he's shown me what Christ the King actually means. You know, it's one thing to read it. Oh, he's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. But when you see it, you know, in concepts and there's times when. You see it and you don't even know really what you're looking at, but it's right there in plain sight. And so you have to really try to draw out to have, and pray for a better understanding that God would reveal these things to us. So number 29, how does how does Christ execute the office? I'm assuming you have the question there, right? How does Christ execute the office of a king? Answer. You guys can read. Christ executed the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling, in defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Amen. So why don't we pray before we start such a large topic. Father, indeed, I'm so grateful to be here amongst my brothers and sisters, Lord, and just very grateful that you have brought us uh, for what seems right now through this dark, dark moment that you brought forth in our lives. Father, I pray that you would just continue to bear fruit, not only in my life, but in the life of my family and all of these other brothers and sisters here. Lord, I know sometimes seeing a trial from afar off can uh, make us examine our own lives. And Father, tonight and every night, every hour, we need you. Uh, we need you more than ever, Lord, every day. We thank you for revealing that to us. We pray, Father, that you would just cause your word to shine forth bright, that we may understand our existence here, understand our lives here, that are not our, they are not our own. We were brought at a price. Help us to glorify you in our bodies, Lord, that belong to you, in our hearts and in our minds. Help us to worship you. And as you have commanded us to do with all of our strength and all of our might, tonight we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You know, one of the things technology does is it helps you to keep up with things, to like track things from afar. Um, the time we were at home, we got to keep up with most of the messages. And it was a blessing just to see that we've got podcasts, we've got, you know, a YouTube channel. So when the YouTube channel didn't work, then I would go to the website and then I'd be like, well, I can go to the podcast and then. You know, stream it, maybe, you know, it has a picture, but if not, I could just listen to it on my headphones, you know, so it was a blessing to be able to keep up with all of that. And I believe Ross had preached on the prophet, the prophet part, right? And then after that, Pastor Paul faithfully went through and executed, uh, Christ executes office as a priest. And so tonight, before I get into this test, I wanted to summarize those three together with King but I wanted to remember for a minute that Pastor Nick had broke down the term of prophet in the New Testament that God gives us this detailed breakdown where there's 
there's more than one definition of a prophet, right? And I was wondering how Pastor Nick was going to handle that. And I was like, man, that man is killing it. I was just like, I wanted to just grab him and hug him because I remember Stephen and I have talked about this for years that um, I believe the charismatic movement gets a leg up on us a lot of times when we don't accurately handle that term prophet and understand it to mean teaching. And so when I saw that, I was like really excited. You know, I reached out to Nick and was like, man, that was that was spot on the money. So my wife and I were really blessed by that, you know, especially a lot of my family being charismatic. Stephen knows where I'm coming from. It's just kind of a strange thing that most black families have either Baptists or charismatic backgrounds. That's just how it is. You know, Stephen would always tease me because I was raised Roman Catholic and say, I don't know many black Catholics, you know. (laughs) Other than Alan Keyes, right? I'm like, well, brother, I grew up with a whole sea of black Catholics in San Francisco. But, you know, praise God, I'm no longer a Roman Catholic, but, you know, a true Catholic, universal church, that is, not not the heretical uh, church or apostate, whatever you prefer to call Rome. So we see this term prophet being used here in reference to our Lord in the same way on this catechism question. The usage of the word prophet simply means, you know, as a teacher, right? And we see that in scripture. I mean, the Lord Jesus, when he said, call no one rabbi for there's one rabbi, right? And that that would be him, right? And so rabbi, we know, means teacher. So to break this down regarding how the office Christ executes, I'll say, We need Christ as prophet because of our utter ignorance. I mean, how many times did Jesus have to correct his own disciples, right? Are you still without understanding? Do you still not get it? It's like, it's not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles him. It's what comes out of a man's mouth. And then he goes on and talks about all the different lawlessness that comes out of our hearts and expressed out of our mind, out of our mouth, you know, that starts in our hearts and minds, right? So, It's not just that. I mean, we're not born with understanding. We need to, through our process of sanctification, you know, there's a a thing that we used to study when I was in college, you know, epistemology. Talks about a priori, posteriori knowledge. Like, how do you, are you born with certain things? You know, some people have certain gifts, like Pastor Nick was preaching on today, right? But you still have to develop those things. It's like you're just going to sit down and just, you know, Ross and I were talking about this after church, and just ace this arithmetic lesson without any study. Now, some people can do that. Like me and Nick were saying, it gets on my nerves because I'm terrible at math, right? But nevertheless, when it comes to the Bible, no one's born knowing 66 books, 40 authors, context, exegesis, all these things. We have to understand that we need God to teach us, okay? So Christ being the prophet definitely is referenced to teacher here, I believe. And we need Christ as priest because of our lawless deeds, it's not like we can go back in time and say, well, I, I told a lie, yeah, but I don't really lie anymore. Well, you lying right now if you say that, right? Once you lie, you are a liar, right? Now, we're repentant liars. You know, we've, you know, fled, fly, we've flown to Christ, you know, for our lawless deeds, but we need Christ as priest to atone and to intercede for us. You know, that's just, that's how it is. You know, and when the world doesn't understand that, it's, it's you know, we say it's, it's very sad. I mean, I see a lot of family members of mine who just reject the Lord, who think it's funny 
you know, we buried one of my young cousins. He was 35 years old. I, I remember we used to go over to my aunt's house over in the city, and he would play with this big wheel. We were, we were talking about this the other day. We'd be watching Tyson fights back in the 80s, and he'd be in there in the living room on his big wheel. And he's dead now. Didn't know the Lord, you know, 35 years old. And when we were at his funeral, there was this uh, charismatic preacher there, but he was he was bringing it. He was preaching the gospel. He was had some fire, and they were all laughing and joking. And he's like, "What y'all laughing at? You're on your way to hell." And they were like, "What?" He was like, "Yeah, I'm talking to you. You who ain't married to the one you sitting next to." He was like, just in their chest, like telling them openly about sins that were that you haven't repented of. That you've not come to Christ. You're going to pay for that. And he was just direct. And so the sad part for me is how my family would just see that and be like, that's not for me. That's for you, John. I'm glad you're religious. But they were marching towards hell very, very, very steadily. And thank God that he's revealed to us our need for Christ as our priest. And we need Christ also as our king because in our fallen nature, we're rebels. We're rebels. Even after we're regenerate, we still rebel, okay? I was talking to one of my children earlier today and just saying, you know, as I was correcting them, I said, do you think that this is unique to you? I hope you don't because I've done this too. And just like you, I need the Lord and I need God, the goodness of God to lead me to repentance. You know, you can know good, but what does James say to him who knows to do good and does not do it to him? It is what? Sin. It's sin. It's sin. We need Christ as king to rule over us and command us in that which is good. You cannot talk about Christ executing the office of a king without touching on the kingdom of God. A king has a relationship to his kingdom. We'll talk about that in a minute. Many of the verses that in this catechism touched on the kingdom of God with ever even, without ever even mentioning it. And that's why God expects us to know his word. There was a whole section in here I was going to put in about the triumphal entry, like when Christ rode in on a donkey on Palm Sunday. But I was like, ah, you know, I'm going to take this out because it didn't flow with the catechism question. But one of the parts of, about it I missed taking out was just the sovereignty of Palm Sunday. How you saw all those believers who were just so, you know, had so much joy that when they saw him ride in like that, they knew that moment. And God obviously had. These were people who studied their scriptures. They knew exactly what was taking place. Why do you think they laid down those branches, right? They knew the Bible. They knew what they held, that Old Testament they held in their hands. They knew it. They knew what was taking place. So keep that in mind because in a minute, we're going to talk about the flip side of that, about those who don't know and the consequences of that. So, like I said, the kingdom of God it's talked about with, you know, if, if you don't know what you're looking at, you can be looking at the kingdom right in front of you and not even really notice it. And we'll get to a verse like that in a second here. So this is one of the main reasons why when we read and study our Bibles, 
we must pay close attention to every word that the Lord has said. You know, the disciples, they hung on every word Jesus was saying. That's why when they stopped, they were like, like they thought they had it sometimes and other times they just didn't get it. Okay, but we need to be like that when it comes to scripture. We need to be like that prayerfully, like, Lord, I don't understand this. Speak to me, Lord. And then bounce it off your pastors, bounce it off your brothers in church. You know, even your pastors have told you that they learn and grow. None of us are, are ever outside of that. So like I said a moment ago, you cannot have a king without a kingdom and you cannot have a kingdom without a king. The kingdom itself is a whole nother topic, but you cannot fully grasp Christ executing the office as king without discussing the relationship between king and kingdom. So how does Christ execute the office as a king? Well, simply put, he builds his church, right? And he reigns over them from the throne of grace. That's one way to put it. But as the catechism says, he, exec he executes his office as king by subduing us to himself. So if you turn to Acts 15, 14. I'll wait for a moment. Let you get there. I, by default, always use the New King James because I've read over it so many times. It's so easier for me to read. I feel like I'm learning a whole new language when I read the ESV sometimes. So my words are a little bit different. Forgive me. 15, 14 through 17. It says here, Simon has declared, Simon has declared how God had first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. So here at the Council of Jerusalem, when they met. Not only did the Judaizers or, you know, when they got together, they were promoting this. You had to be circumcised, you know, you had to keep the law of Moses to be saved, right? And it was the same nonsense they were spewing out when we studied Galatians. Ross, remember when you taught Galatians, we were learned about that in chapter two. And they were so hung up on their tradition, right? But in this verse right here, it says that God had declared how he visited the Gentiles. Now, remember that word Gentiles comes from the word ethne. Me and Stephen talked about this like a million times, right? So in the New Testament, it's ethne. In the Old Testament, it's goyim, which is Hebrew for same three terms it's used. Gentiles, nations can also mean heathen or a reference to unbelievers. So God visited the nations or those outside the borders of Israel. That would be the unbelieving people those who are not Jews, to take out of them a people for his name. This is the doctrine of election right there, right? Again, it doesn't mention it, but this is one of those moments where, you know, you have to be able to understand that's what's being taught here. So the Jews had ignorantly placed their identity in their tradition, cultural black, in their cultural background, and not in Christ. 
Okay, they were so vehemently dogmatic that they had it all right. And you think of most of the cults since then have had the same type of pride, the same type of cultural identity. Oh, well, you know, you've got British Israelism. You've got all these different, you've got the Hebrew Israelite movement. We're the Jews. You know, you've had all kinds of people saying that. You've got Mormons. You know, of course, I've told all kinds of jokes about Mormons, right? We grew up with a few of them in the city, you know, and they really have a very cultic tribal view. But is this limited to just white people in America? No. Like I said, the Hebrew Israelite movement, they're one of the most racist movements I've ever seen in my life, and they're black. But they believe that, you know, if you're not black, you're not one of the chosen people of God, and they somehow conflate the transatlantic slave trade with the slavery in Egypt in, in the Bible. I'm like, I don't know how they do that, but they do it. So our identity must be in Christ. In order to, to bow the knee, in order to understand Christ as king, you have to have an understanding that you're lost and you need God. And that ain't got nothing to do with your ethnicity. Nothing at all. <laughs> Everybody is born lost. So these Jews, they were students of scripture. And yet these things were hidden from their very eyes. Isn't that amazing? They sat there. They studied the word day in and day out. They thought they had it together, but they were like this. Going through those pages. You know, blind as a bat. If you go with me to Luke 19, it kind of will connect this, how God brought out. And then... Um, Touch a little bit more on Acts 15 here in a second. But I'm trying to tie this back into this, this council that they had in Jerusalem. When they sat there and they were arguing these points back and forth, they felt like their culture was being threatened, a lot of them, right? Oh, you got to keep the law. Remember when Peter had played, or was it, um, yeah, he played the hypocrite, right? And another apostle came and rebuked him. I think it was, it was Paul, right? When he rebuked him to his face. He said, you're not going to eat with these people. He said, you being a Jew, why do you try to compel the Gentiles to live as though they're Jews? He was like, we who are Jews by nature, not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is justified by faith and not in what you're trying to promote, right? I'm paraphrasing it, but this led to a big rift in the New Testament. There was a big section in the New Testament where this beef that they had was necessary and real. And for those of us who abhor confrontation, there are times when the enemy will use that against you. When you're so politically correct, like Nick was saying earlier, well, yeah, unity and uniformity, where you're just like, oh, I just want to get along with brothers. No, there's times where you need to load your gun and you need to go and get ready to fire. Okay, if somebody is getting ready to teach heresy or they're getting ready to teach something that goes against the law of God, goes against what's in the word of God that's revealed to us, that's a fight you need to have, okay? And so when I read that, I see Paul did what he had to do. He did what he had to do. He had to go resist him to his face. So in Luke 19, 41 through 44, it says, and just pay close attention to what's being read here. It says, now, as he drew near, and this is a parallel to, I believe, the Olivet Discourse, too, a very 
deep, another study we could even have. He saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Think about that. They studied and studied and studied, but God visited the Gentiles. God visited the nations. God was right there amongst Israel, and they didn't know the day of their visitation. Why? Because they were so pridefully hung up and blinded by their tradition, by their ethnicity, and by their cultural background. that They didn't know God. They didn't know God. So these passages should help us understand why the Jews were misunderstood when Christ came to inaugurate, set up the kingdom and bring salvation. Remember the promotion of circumcision and keeping the law of Moses, like I just talked about. They believed they had to do those things to just be justified. But here Jesus said to them, if you had known, which they did not, it was by the decree of the king that they rejected them. It's like that passage when it said, have you never read where it says the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. And it was marvelous in our eyes. So God, from the beginning, in coming into, you know, keeping the fulfillment of what the covenant of redemption in eternity, when he was recognized as king, it was his will that he rejected them. That's why they rejected him. You know, a lot of times we talk in those terms back and forth, but we have to remember, say, oh, if you accepted Jesus, well, has Jesus accepted you? That's really what it comes down to. So they didn't know the day of their visitation. Who were they being visited by? The king. So in Acts 15 on this passage, I don't know many of you have heard these names like growing up in the Bay Area, you hear Tabernacle of David or I used to wonder like, why do they call churches like that, right? Until I started studying the word more and understanding covenant theology. Well, if you look here in this passage, it says the words of the prophets agree, right? So why do those prophets agree? Well, we have to understand something. They were all prophesying about the same thing. Okay? And the things that they were prophesying about had to do with God's plan of redemption, redemptive history back from eternity past, that a king was going to come. And that's what we're about to get uh, deep into here in a minute. So salvation was, always has been, and always will be for Israel. That's one of the passages that has stumped people for many years, Matthew 24, 15, when Jesus said, I was not sent except for the lost sheep of Israel. People are like, oh man, Gentiles are doomed. <laughs> I used to read that to a lot of my dispensational buddies and they would just say, I don't know what that means. Well, yeah, God only came for Israel. True Israel. So if you're a Gentile, you must be grafted in for you to be one of his. So that not all Israel were those who 
in Romans 9 were those who were rejected, those who did not honor or bow the knee to the king, the accursed, the broken off branches, the ones that God crushes. And I'm trying to set that up for what we should get into here in a moment. The Jews didn't understand that all the Old Testament, God foretold through the prophets that he would one day extend his people to those outside the borders of geographical Israel, tiny Israel located in the Middle East. God's plan from way back when any student of scripture knows that that it wasn't this. Who's ever seen that? That um, there's like a meme that 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 they used to do where you look and then there'd be this plan of salvation for the nations and there'd be this mountain in the way and this valley and then there'd be another mountain. <laughs> you ever seen that, Pastor Paul? That's pretty heavy, right? But that just shows you how people misunderstand scripture. No, there's no mountain in the way. The prophets clearly saw that God had a plan to bring in those outside the borders of Israel to bow the knee to him as king. So we already talked about it. It's scary that they missed all that because of their legalism, their tradition, and their really their ethnic tribalism is what it was, right? So in God's sovereignty, when he blinded them, it resulted in their judgment and fulfilling of these prophecies taking place. So back to the Acts passage, it says here in Acts that the words of these prophets agree in Amos. Simon had declared among the nations that he would take out these people and the Lord would make these people his own. Okay, so... Who are these other prophets? What did they say that agreed? Why does it say the words of the prophets, plural, agree with Amos? Okay, Amos was talking about the tabernacle of David being the church, okay? That he would set up this so that the rest of mankind, Anthropon, the rest of humanity would seek God, would have a place of worship that you no longer had to go into the confines of Israel and go to the temple to worship God. You could worship God anywhere, like John 4 says, in spirit and in truth. You could worship the king anywhere. So in Micah 5, 1 through 4, it says, Now gather yourselves in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with the rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem and Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forths are from old, from everlasting. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. I'll just skip that part. And he shall stand. And feed his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great till the ends of the earth. So Micah foretold that Christ would come forth and be a ruler. A ruler is a king. A ruler is a king that he would stand and feed the flock in the strength of the Lord and that he would be great until the ends of the earth. This is the name of God being proclaimed here. And so him being a ruler, I love that, that phrase, uh, till the ends of the earth, right? We see it in Acts 1, but all throughout the Old Testament, like when you read the Septuagint, that word ends of the earth means eschaton. It's like in the last things, God's going to do this in the last times, right? 
from the time of Christ, earthly ministry, all the way until the last day. God is going to make this happen. Okay, can't miss that. So this points to Christ as, as king. And I love how it touches on all of his roles, right? It said that he would have strength. He would, he would, his name would be great and he would be a ruler, right? And we see the same thing here in Malachi 1.11. You don't have to turn all these passages, maybe write them down. From the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name will be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, we see Malachi's prophecy in agreement with Amos and Micah. Okay, God will take out a people for his name. His name will be great among the nations, okay? And there will be a ruler to shepherd his people Israel. So they all saw the same thing. Christ here is the most potent king to ever rule the world. And he always will be the most potent king. That's why he's called the potentate, okay? And his name is great among the nations. At that time, it wasn't. Today, it is. And you know what? It's becoming greater and greater as the gospel goes out. Okay, more and more people come to Christ, the greater his name will be. Jeremiah is another prophet. Okay, Jeremiah 10.10, it says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his wrath and indignation. Excuse me, his indignation didn't say wrath. Here, Jeremiah describes God as the everlasting king. Okay, so he's obviously always been that. But Christ, when he tabernacled among us, when when the Lord came and became flesh, he, I love it when it says in the, in the Amplified, when it says he pitched his tent among us. Right. He came and set up shot. Shop. That's when later on he was recognized as king. They knew that. And he was recognized as king when he came. You know, so the nations, though, obviously to uh, the few people that saw him on, on um, you know, on Palm Sunday, the, the, the kings that came and worshipped him, those tiny few, it just grew and grew. More and more people came to understand that this was the king, the promised one that was foretold of. So Habakkuk saw the same thing that Amos saw. In Habakkuk 2, it says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So he gives us another wrinkle to this same flavor of truth. He says, There will come a time when the earth would be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. So this simile here isn't to be taken literal. Earth has land and sea. It's a picture, right? The prophet is stating here that the earth would be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, that this would indicate to us this would be a saving knowledge of God, not just some generic knowledge. And this is not like every place without exception. I think everyone agrees with that eschatologically, but this would be that the knowledge of Christ will grow and grow in different places on this earth. And there will be many people who have not bowed the knee to Christ. There will be some places where it's bursting out of the seams, and there will be places where he's completely unknown. 
there's still places in this world, remote parts of the earth, where they don't even never even seen a Bible. And so there's still plenty of work left to be done for the Lord. So those who have this knowledge on bended knee have bowed the knee to Christ as king. I love how the catechism got all these questions. Sometimes I look at the catechisms and I'm like, man, I wish they would have used this verse. But on this one, I was like, bam, bam, bam. I see where they used all these verses like and it just, you know, and so there's been times when I've looked at it like, man, I've never thought of using that verse for this topic. Right. But it says here in Isaiah 33, 22, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. He's also savior here. He's not just mentioned to be judge and lawgiver, but it says here, the Lord is our king. I love how these verses also talk about his, it ties it into the role as king, right? Everything we've discussed here talks about, you know, God alone is the one who's going to be the judge, right? God alone is the lawgiver. Talk that You connect that to teaching, right? So us getting the law of God, him giving the law is to instruct us in righteousness, right? And so as he reigns over his people, he tells his people what's good and what's evil. So if you turn back a chapter to Isaiah 32, the prophet says, behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule with justice. I love these next few parts here. You really have to pay attention to see what, it, what it's, it's saying. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Earlier in the previous chapter, Isaiah prophetically declared that a king, which we know is Christ, obviously we have the New Testament, and they obviously spoke audibly. God revealed plenty to them in the Old Testament, right? There's lots of debate about how much to who and so, so on and so forth. But that this king, which we know as Christ, would reign in righteousness. The other verses here give us an imagery about what that king would do. A hiding place from the wind, that would be a refuge, right? You think about when a hurricane or, you know, just things that happen with wind, right? You get all those terrible storms that come down into the Gulf, right? And in doing business in Texas, I've learned that wind and hail is just like earthquake insurance here in California. You don't have to carry it, but it's at your own risk. As that roof gets torn off, before it does, where are you going? You're going to find a refuge, right? So this verse right here is giving us imagery, a hiding place from the wind. Who's our hiding place? What do we sing? Hiding in thee. We don't sing that hymn here, but I used to love that hymn. Thou blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee, right? We're hiding in Christ. He's our refuge, okay? The same as a cover from the tempest. Here's another picture of a refuge here. That would be Christ, our king. We know this to be true, not only from these verses, but practically speaking in our own lives. How many of us here can testify, give testimony after testimony that we have fled to Christ in a time of trouble and he has become our refuge? I would say all of us, right? We've experienced this from one time, at least at one point or another in our life.
Christ has been our refuge. This one really, I love this one because it just ties into so many passages in the Bible about water. The imagery of rivers of water in a dry place are a picture also of how he gives us his word. In a, wor in a world that's void of truth and filled with darkness. You know, it's like that hymn we sing, Jesus is a rock in a weary land, right? A shelter in the time of storm. We need the Lord. This is a wicked world we live in. And we have wickedness in us. It's just, it's a hopeless battle apart from God and his grace. Okay, we need our king to reign in our lives. And lastly, this rock in a weary land where that hymn comes from is to show us that our king would be our foundation. And we see that all throughout the Bible. Christ is our rock. Okay, it's in, it's in the Psalms. It's in the Gospels. It's in it's all over the Bible. So this brings us to the second to the last passage. First uh, Corinthians 15, 25. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Hallelujah. But notice it doesn't say he will reign when he has put all enemies under his feet. He must reign. He's reigning right now until he has put all enemies under his feet. Okay, sorry, pre-mill brothers, you... <laughs> need to go back to the drawing board on that one, right? I wish my brother would have showed up tonight. I would have been like, you ain't got it right. I remember when James White used to preach at Alpha and Omega and he would sometimes do a follow-up sermon to like something one of the other brothers did in the other, like earlier in the summer. And they'd be like, wait a minute, we just preached on that. He said, uh, I'm sorry, brother, you just didn't get it right. <laughs> you know? And he's just, he's a clown, man. I love that brother. He loves to clown around like that, but there's some seriousness in it too, right? So we don't always get things right. Amen? I mean, there's been plenty of times I'm like, man, I didn't quite understand that. Thank you, brother. <clears throat> so there's always been a lot of disagreement over this passage and a lot of speculation when it comes to the meaning of this verse. I'll try to simplify it the best way that I can. He must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. There are two types of ways that God subdues his enemies, okay? Remember that word subdue, if you look it up in a dictionary, subdue, conquer, they're synonyms, right? So I would just say, just simplify, judgment and mercy, justice and mercy. So for the believer, justice and mercy we receive. Justice at the cross, mercy in Christ. For the unbeliever, Justice, judgment only. There is no mercy. Okay? So God subdues his enemies. Both, they both involve conquering. And both advance the growth of the kingdom of God. Okay? If we're going to say Christ is executing the office as king, we need to understand he's building his kingdom. Okay? He's building his kingdom. The majority of the people in this age have met their destiny in destruction. And ruin. Okay? I know we always have this post-mill, I-mill distinction debate, but everybody agrees that if you look back on human history, the majority of the people who've lived on the face of this planet have died and gone to hell. 
That's just a fact. Okay. Now, I know our brothers say, yeah, but there's going to come a time when this, well, I'm just talking about the past. I'm not talking about the future, right? So we can get into that debate. And I know my brother will bring a lunch and a dinner and we'll finish them both and we'll still be debating. But when it comes to standing before the Lord, there's no mystery that this narrow path, yeah, as far as we've seen in human history up until now, few have actually found it, right? Few have actually found it, okay? The majority of the people have not had ears to hear, have not had eyes to see, have not had a heart that's circumcised, a heart of understanding. So we've seen this through redemptive history, okay? Now, the debate, uh, obviously, there's going to be, will this always be the case? Will believers always be the minority in this world? And we could talk about that till we're blue in the face. But you know what? We actually don't have any control over it. We need to stay in our lane and place our hand, place ourselves under the sovereign hand of our king by being obedient to him, by staying at our post and by doing what he has commanded us to do. All those results, they're his. They're not ours. They're not ours. Okay. So technically, it's a, it's a theoretical debate anyway, right? Because we have no control over it, right? At all. But true regenerate believers make up the people of God. So this judgment, uh, we won't be a part of, right? Judgment begins with the household of God. I was reading some, some pretty interesting comments on that about how, yeah, it begins with us. Our, we've already been judged at the cross. And then others were like, no, you know, at the Bema seat, that'll come first. I was like, wow, it kind of really got my wheels turning because I hadn't read some of the different perspectives on that, right? But true regenerate is, or one thing we can all agree on is that we will not go into the judgment when it comes to the great white throne. Like the books, we're not going to be judged by the law of God. We've been judged because Christ took our sins already on, on himself. So when it comes to the judgment that Christ exercises that involves both temp temporal and eternal destruction of his enemies, this is one of the ways that Christ reigns by putting all of his enemies under his feet, all of them, every last one of them, okay? The other way that we see Christ ruling and reigning now is by converting his elect, as the catechism says, subduing us unto himself, okay? And that we're subject, where we were once not subject to his authority, we are subject to his authority. So conversions, they involve conquering. We once belonged to a different master prior to Christ. We involved to, we were, I mean, we were, we, were, we were serving the devil. We were children of, of wrath by nature. That's, that's what Ephesians says, right? And so he took us from the prince of darkness and brought us to the king of kings. Colossians 1.13 is a good example of this. You can probably just jot it down. But he's translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And so let us not forget that, that he also in 1 Corinthians 15, that when he's ruling and reigning, he conquered the grave, right? So that's why when Jesus said, he who believes in me, in me though he shall die, he shall what? He shall live. He shall live. Okay. So our God reigns supreme as king. He is conqueror of all. Conqueror of all. So this brings us to Psalm 110. 
Okay. Psalm 110. This is one of my favorite Psalms as well. Uh, definitely got into some pretty strong debates with some of my unbelieving friends before I really had a good grasp on this Psalm. But I would just always go to how it always pointed to Yahweh and it says Yahweh and Adonai, right? And I would point that out that even in the little text they were holding, it said that. So how do you explain these, this true Lord concept? They're like, oh, man, I'll get back to you like the JWs. I'll go ask my elder. I'll go ask my rabbi. But they never come back. Can't hold a candle to the truth. You can't hold a cup of water to the truth. The truth is the truth. There's no defeating the truth. Jesus is the truth. You're not going to defeat Jesus. It's that simple. So Christ, the conqueror, the sovereign restrainer, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The right hand in scripture, I didn't write down the, the, the notes on this. So I apologize, I forgot. But it's, it's seen as a place of majesty and a place of honor. There's several Old Testament passages that reference that. Like even in the New Testament, when they, um, when they asked Jesus to sit at the right hand, right? Exactly. He said, that's not mine to give. But he said, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They're like, yes, Lord, we're able. I was like, man, I wonder what happened to them after that. <laughs> you know, I always wonder. I'm like, man, that was pretty optimistic, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm able to do what you do, God. I always think they got broke off something proper, man, for real. It probably didn't end well for them, right? And rightfully so. You're lifting yourself up and elevating yourself to the place of God? Who are we to say something like that? When oftentimes, <laughs> even if we don't say it, we think it sometimes, right? So the first reference to Lord here, like I said a moment ago, is Yahweh. And every single manuscript family that I haven't studied every single one, but many of the manuscripts throughout the Vulgate, the Septuagint, the Vaticanus, the Masoretic text, they all have the same format, Yahweh, Adonai. And you may wonder, why is this a big deal? It's the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. It's a huge deal because most people who don't believe, who study, they reject what? The New Testament. <laughs> they reject the New Testament. So it's a huge deal because these people are no dummies. I know a lot of times, sometimes we can go too far in our understanding of sovereignty and say, well, they're just blind and dumb. No, these are some very intelligent people. They're just, their belief is a moral issue. They're unregenerate and they're blind to come to Christ. But they can tell you plenty of other things. And when they study all of this, this is hidden from them. God hides this from them. Absolutely, he hardens their hearts. So this is the most heavily quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's a foundational passage to the deity of Christ and directly points us to Mashiach. In Hebrew, that's the Messiah. Now, why did I use that Hebrew word? Well, a lot of my Jewish buddies, we, we debate this all the time. We go back and forth. And they're just like, I will never bow to your Jesus. He's this and that. And they say all kinds of slanderous, just blasphemy about him. 
you know, and it's just a trip how I remember when they said, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. Man, they surely got that because a lot of a lot of the Jews today, when you talk to them about the Lord, they're more hostile than any other heretical movement on the planet. Just about. Really, Judaism is a false religion because they've missed the boat. They've missed the day of their visitation. Now, there's still hope for them. But in, I think there's a passage in Corinthians that says to this day in the reading of the Old Testament that I'm paraphrasing, but they still got the blinders on and those blinders are taken away when they come to Christ. Okay, that's when their understanding is opened up. So in the meaning of Psalm 110, as Christ takes his place on the throne, the simplest meaning is that Yahweh, Yahweh, God the Father, told God the Son, sit at my right hand and I will make, till I make your enemies your footstool. The simplest meaning is God turns his elect, his chosen ones from enemies into worshipers uh, at his footstool. Okay, turn to Acts 2, 34 through 39 and I think you'll really get a flavor of this. Acts 2, 34 through 39. It says here, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and your children and to all, those, all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. So the New Testament context of Christ sitting at the right hand of Yahweh is to bring repentance to the elect of God. That's what it is. And the primary focus of the New Testament in this passage, uh, you don't need to turn to this passage right now, Matthew 22, but I wanted to just point it out that the Lord used Psalm 110 here as somewhat of an apologetic when he was going back and forth with the Pharisees about David and David's understanding. And so he said, you know, the Pharisees, he knew they didn't believe this, right? So he demonstrated to them their ignorance and their lack of understanding. So he's like, well, how does David have this all figured out? You know, and it stumped them. It stumped them. So we don't see it used in detail here, but I want you to turn to Hebrews 1 so we can understand how the New Testament, the best commentary you will ever hold in your hand is the New Testament, okay? The New Testament helps us understand what the Old Testament a lot of those passages prophetically and contextually are saying. So in Hebrews 1, 13 through 14, it says, But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So Yahweh never said to the angels, sit at my right hand. He never said that to them. 
Nevertheless, the angels are a part of the means that he uses to subdue his elect and bring us to our to the inheritance of our salvation. He said, are they not all ministering, ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? Okay. They say we have guardian angels. Yes, I believe we do. But that's not all they do is guard us. Before we're saved, I believe they minister to us. I don't know how all that works, but I know there's this passage in Hebrews that always, it always trips me out. I get goosebumps when I talk about it when he says, you know, that we have unawarely entertained angels. I wonder how many times have we done that? Like, I remember when I met Pastor Paul and he was telling his testimony about that truck that he tumbled down in. I was like, man, there had to be an angel there that day, boy. God had other plans for you, you know? And I have many stories in my life, and I'm sure you do too, where you're like, I just don't understand how that happened. Okay, well, in eternity, I'm sure God will... I, I, well, I hope he reveals those things to us, right? So in verse 2, or after we get through this, we'll be done here. It says, in verse 2, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. This is Psalm 110.2. So the Lord shall send forth his strength, right? And a rod, kind of like a scepter, right, is a symbol of power and authority. We saw that, um, probably getting ahead of myself on my notes here, but we saw that in Genesis 49, right? Judah is a lion's well, right? He's talking about, this was prophetically talking about Christ coming in the last days and where did he come from? The tribe of Judah, right? The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. So when we think about that, this scepter, this rod that he's sending forth, that he's ruling in the midst of his enemies. Think about this for a minute. King David was a type of Christ. Okay? But King David ruled in the midst of enemies. He had enemies all around him. You read through the Psalms, man, they were trying to kill that man. Okay? But we know Christ's rule and the universality of Messiah's reign. You think of Psalm 2, Psalm 72, Psalm 110. Okay? Christ's reign is not like David's. David was a type of Christ. Okay? Christ is the antitype. He's the fulfillment of that type. Okay, we sang a song this morning, and I really was enjoying it. It was talking about types and shadows, right? It was a really, that was a blessing to sing that song, by the way. Did you pick that one, Paul? Yeah, that was a good song. You picked it? Somebody picked it. Who picked it? Oh, good. You picked it. So I was just asking you if you picked it. Send me that song. That was a blessing. Thank you. So David also, like I said, he ruled in the midst of enemies. But Christ is ruling now in the midst of his enemies. Think about that. He's ruling right now in the midst of his enemies. Okay. Christ is the anti-type of fulfillment, holding supreme authority, supreme authority, rightfully taking David's throne as the king of all kings. But specifically here, Christ is ruling in the midst of his enemies, which is to say that he possesses all authority over his enemies. That's something we really don't think about, right? We see all the chaos in this world and we don't realize that God is orchestrating his plan behind the scenes of all of this, right? That should give us great hope. Look at verse three. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness, 
from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. He makes us volunteers in the day of his power. Throughout church history, God's people have wanted to serve the Lord. Okay, going all the way back to Adam. Moses, God's people have always wanted to serve the Lord. When David was king of Israel, there were people willing to go to battle. And even still, right in this room, I've been to battle with y'all for the Lord. Many of y'all in this room, okay? And many of people who are here in the morning service, okay? We battle it out for our king, okay? And he exercises that office perfectly like no one else can because he is God. God causes his people to be willing by revealing to them his beauty, the beauty of his holiness. That makes us want to worship, want to serve God because there's none like him. There's no other, okay? And when we get to fumbling, fumbling around with idols in our life, he reminds us and shows us how worthless they are. I always think of when I fall into sin, I look back and I'm like, my people are, have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewn for themselves what? Broken cisterns. You think about that. There's nothing greater than God. There's nothing greater than our king. So God in his faithfulness, as much as we rebel at times, brings back the wanderer brings back his elect to once again bow the knee to our king in repentance. And like, like I said, when we serve him, he makes us willing. Your people will be volunteers. He gives us that willingness to want to serve him, to want to glorify him, because there's no other greater fulfillment this world has than to do what you were created to do, and that is to worship your king. So the catechism says he subdues us to himself. Subduing, like I said, is synonymous with conquering. The Lord could have conquered any way he chose, but he was pleased to use means. And the means he conquers through, specifically here, is us. Okay, he uses other means, but he uses his body to conquer. Okay, and that's a whole nother sermon by itself about conquering. But turn to Revelation 2.25. I really enjoy this passage right here because... I remember reading it and not understanding it for several years. And then the Lord just started to use all these different passages I was studying where I started to just see. I was like, wow, this is incredible. I'm seeing what this means now. But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with the rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I also have received from my father, and I will give to him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here John wrote to the seven churches, Thyatira specifically in this section, reminding them how the Lord had foretold he would work through his people in this world. This is a quotation from Psalm 2 verbatim. The Psalter had said that. It was dashed in the pieces like a potter's vessel. So the Lord exercises his kingship over us with this rod of iron. Like I said, just like this scepter in Genesis 49. So the rod that Christ rules with is a symbol of authority, is kingship. But it's also a rod of chastisement. It's a mark of sonship. 
It's an expression of the love that he has for his people. Okay? When my kids get caught doing something they ain't got no business doing, I say, they go, oh, I get all bits out of shape. And I'm like, no, you first, you better thank God for allowing you to be caught right now. That is a blessing in and of itself. Okay? And then I always quote Revelation 3 when it says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Just like Hebrews 12, that rod, it has an expression of love in it, of sonship. It's a mark of sonship. I say it's better than being without chastisement, without correction. Because if not, Christopher, you probably know, King James says, not you're illegitimate, you're bastards. Okay, you don't belong to God. It's very serious. I'd rather have that rod any day of the week than not belong to God. So remember, these means that he uses, when we conquer, we're overcomers. God says that he'll give us power and authority over the nations. And we have it. We have it right now. Okay? So how, any of you in this room, if you see me living a life contrary to the faith, okay, you have authority to come up to me and say, hey, Brother John, that ain't quite adding up. Come here for a minute, man. That's sin. Is everything all right? Yeah, everything's all right. Well, you need to repent. Okay, and I'm saying not that it's got to go exactly like that, but you possess that authority. You know what? And vice versa. Okay? You can see me anywhere in the community, at a, at a grocery store, at a hardware store. I can see you. But as a covenant community of God, we have that authority to confront each other over sin. Okay? Now, we don't possess the authority to put each other out of the church. Okay? That belongs to the elders. But that confrontation, it needs to take place in love, okay? Church discipline involves authority. To him who overcomes, I'll give him power over the nations. Believers have this authority. God advances his kingdom and expands his church through the conquering that our king does. When he said, on this rock, I will build my church, okay? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Almost done here. It says, a conqueror. Um, and an overcomer, synonymous with being an overcomer. The Greek word nikeo, it means to conquer, to prevail, to overcome. Does this sound familiar? To subdue. That's where the catechisms, catechism writers got this concept, okay? So the church's mission to preach the gospel and expand the kingdom, to conquer darkness, to prevail against evil opposition, to resist evil, to overcome evil with good. To subdue the enemy. It's not just some external enemy. It's battling the sin in our own evil hearts. It's overcoming the world of flesh and the devil. And it's not in our own strength. We're his body. He is the head. It's God who works in us to will and do his good pleasure. Can't forget that part. So let us not forget that we're more than conquerors through him who loved us, right? And in this case... Christ subduing them, making him his footstool, Christ will not fail. Our king will overcome. He shall prevail. We can't forget that. I love this passage in Psalm 72. It says, yes, all kings will fall down before him. All nations will serve him. All kinds of people from all over the world are serving the Lord today and will continue to. All kinds of kings serve Christ. Okay? Verse 4, Pastor Paul covered that. 
broke that down last week about the office of priest. So let me say this in closing. Verses five, six, and seven. The gospel of the kingdom is not good news to everyone. It's just not. It's good news to those who have ears to hear. Okay. It's good news to those who believe, to those who have been given faith, repentance, and the new birth. Okay, 1 Peter 2, 6, when it sets the tone, it says, Therefore, it is also contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders Rejected has become the chief cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. That's some heavy stuff. God appointed them to be what they are. God appointed us to be in Christ. So God subduing these enemies, the gospel being a command. Like I said, God graciously regenerates us, but those outside of Christ he judges, he rejects, he leaves them to suffer the just punishment of their sins. We see in 1 Peter here, all this is done by the king. Okay, the stone, the rock. In verse 5, when it says all this, he'll execute these kings in the day of wrath. Throughout history, we've seen the Lord do this. Okay, in Daniel, it says the Lord has removed kings and raised up kings, Daniel proclaimed in Daniel 2.21. Here we see the Lord judging among the nations and bringing history to pass in the way of his eternal decrees. These are all the purposes of God. Okay? He judges among the nations and fills the places with dead bodies. Think about that. Every single war in the world that's ever taken place, the hand of God has been in it. Okay, that's kind of hard for us to understand that, isn't it? Psalm 72, 9 says, those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. God is going to destroy all those who oppose him because this is his office. He is the king. There's no other king above God. God is the highest king that there is. Now, we all believe this, and I don't doubt that. But how does God bring this to pass? We know that he's sovereign over every single event in human history. And there's been some gruesome things that have happened in history, right? Sometimes I stop and I think, man, that is so heavy that God is superintending to all these things, bringing all of these things to pass for his glory and to his ultimate end. That's, that's larger for our minds to comprehend at times. So in conclusion, the Lord brings this all to pass, including war and peace. God, God perfectly sovereignly causes all these events to align to accomplish his good purposes. Okay, Psalm 46 is one of my favorite Psalms in the Bible. I'm not sure uh, a lot of people quote it tongue in cheek, just like the Jeremiah passage about having a good plan, right? Ain't got nothing to do with graduations, but it's a favorite graduation verse out there, right? So God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, 
Though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, Selah, there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her. Just as the break of dawn, the nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, melted the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah, come behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts, it in, cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. The Lord has paved the way for his church to exist and function. And it's involved peace and it's involved war. I always think of that passage in, um, in Joel when it says he'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. You look around the room and you see all people from all over the world. You're thinking this would never have happened back in those days. God has caused peace so that people can come forth and worship him. And God is the one who stirs up wars and judgment. Okay, and in all of this, he does this and he causes his enemies to be subdued. Making those who don't bow the knee to Christ to lick the dust. This river, that, that this stream that makes glad the city of God, those rivers that come out, God, the living word himself, Christ, our king, in the midst of her, the church. Old Testament and New Testament Israel, old covenant, new covenant Israel, whatever you want to say. it. She shall not be moved. Christ, the bride, will be here till the end of time. That's one of the reasons why I don't believe in the rapture, but we can discuss that after, right? The nations rage and the kingdoms were moved. Who caused them to rage? God. Who caused them to be moved? God. Who brings them peace? The Lord himself. Come behold the works of the Lord who makes desolations cease and causes, who makes desolations in the earth and makes these wars cease. So when God sovereignly does all of this, he, has, he still reminds us, just like he promised Israel, that he is our help in the time of trouble. He is our king. We can trust him. He will keep his promises. When he promised old covenant Israel in this psalm, he promised them that they could be still and know that God would be lifted up amongst the nations, amongst those outside of Israel, that a time would come where he would superintend every single act in human history, bringing it to pass. That when we live and preach Christ, God is being lifted up in the earth. You think about that. Our king is being exalted in the earth. And this is all the work of our sovereign, potent king. So I'll take you guys' questions. I'm, um, 